while he is, you know, he's a history popularizer, I mean, that's kind of the niche he fills, which is to, I mean, his goal is to make American history, American religious history accessible to, you know, non-professional historians. So he doesn't write for professional associations for the history journals. He is writing for, uh, in, in theory, I think folks in church pews. The problem being that he doesn't do very good history, right? So he has a, I mean, as you have in your work exposing his book on uh, Thomas Jefferson, he he has a habit of fabricating quotes might be a bit strong, but he has a habit of taking quotes of questionable provenance and not doing due diligence to say whether or not these are real or whether they were fabricated in generations, you know, later by later generations, which, which is a very common thing. That's Paul Matsko, historian and researcher at the Cato Institute. I asked Paul how, in his opinion, David Barton conducted history. He was kind to refer to our book and specifically our examination of a few questionable quotes used by Barton. We'll hear more from Paul later in this episode, but for now, let me say this is Warren Throckmorton, and you're listening to Telling Jefferson Lies. The series will resume next week with the fifth episode, Whitewashing Jefferson. I think it will be the most powerful and moving episode yet. Please tune in. For now, there are so many stories to tell that I can't get them all in one or two episodes, so I want to do some shorter bonus installments. This is the first. Not all Christian Nation stories come from David Barton. Although this one has a Barton connection, it features a man who has become an enigma to those who know him. Eric Metaxas During the Trump years, Metaxas has increasingly embraced conspiracy theories, including the big lie about the 2020 election and Christian nationalist history. In 2016, Metaxas published a book called If You Can Keep It, about the challenges facing the nation as he understood them. He ventures into American history with discouraging results. Like other Christian nationalist writers, he seems to be on a mission to get his readers to view Jefferson as much more orthodox than he was. In this bonus episode of the series, I want to unpack a questionable quote that Barton once considered unconfirmed, but now believes is valid, and which Metaxas uses to elevate Jefferson's value to Christian nationalists. In his book, If You Can Keep It, Metaxas uses this questionable quote to make a commentary on an accurate passage from Jefferson's book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Speaking about Jefferson, Metaxas writes, Who but a man who believed in God and who took God seriously as an agent in history could write what Jefferson wrote in his Notes on the State of Virginia in 1785? Metaxas then quotes Jefferson's famous words from the notes on the state of Virginia about slavery and how God may turn the tables on masters and slaves since God is just. Here's the quote. 
Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that those liberties are the gift of God, that they are violated but with his wrath? I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. End quote. Then, to claim that Jefferson believed in the God of the Old Testament, Metaxas invokes a questionable quote, which he wrongly attributes to a fictional letter from Jefferson to Daniel Webster. Here's a passage from Metaxas. If we suppose he, meaning Jefferson, is talking about a clockmaker God of deist imagination and not the Yahweh of the Hebrew Scriptures, we should consider his letter to Daniel Webster, in which he says, quote, I have always said and always will say that the studious perusal of the Bible will make better citizens, better fathers, and better husbands, end quote. Basically, Metaxas is saying that Jefferson is saying that, quote, that he'd said something in a letter to Daniel Webster. But this has fractured history in so many ways. First, Jefferson did not write that quote about better husbands and so on in a letter to Webster. The fact-checkers at Monticello have looked for such a letter and concluded, quote, This quotation has not been found in the writings of Thomas Jefferson. Michael Coulter and I also looked for the quote in Jefferson's work and did not find it. The second problem is the quote is attached to a story which appears to be more folklore than true. Unpacking this quote is an interesting exercise in how a story that is very likely to be fiction becomes reported as fact. What makes this quote even more interesting for us is that this is one of the quotes that Barton removed from the myth of separation. Back in the early 1990s, this quote made the list of a dozen that led to the replacement of the myth of separation with original intent. However, sometime later, Barton claimed to confirm the quote. In other words, he claims now that the quote is valid because he has found a source for it. As we shall see, we really cannot trust Barton when he says he uses original sources. If this is what he means by original source, we can't trust him as a historian. Let me explain. Nearly six years after Daniel Webster's death, a letter dated June 16, 1852, to a Professor Pease, probably the University of Vermont Professor Calvin Pease, with the name Daniel Webster attached, appeared in the Vermont Chronicle. The letter thanked the professor for a New York Sabbath School Association report and then described a story about Daniel Webster visiting Jefferson at Monticello. Webster, if it was Webster, allegedly told the professor he, quote, spent a Sabbath with Thomas Jefferson many years ago at his residence in Virginia, end quote. Webster added, quote, it was in the month of June and the weather was delightful, end quote. According to the letter writer Webster, on that Sunday in June, Jefferson uttered the words about the Bible. Actually, the letter writer said that Jefferson said, sacred volume, making men better husbands, better fathers, and better citizens. Let's examine the many problems with the story. 
first the letter of the 1903 collection of Webster's letters that serves as a source for this letter disclosed in a footnote that the letter was taken from a, quote, newspaper clipping, end quote. There is no citation for the primary source. As far as can be determined, there is no handwritten letter from Webster to Pease in existence. An online review of Pease's papers in a collection at the University of Vermont fails to turn up any correspondence to or from Webster. As noted above, the first appearance of this letter was in the May 11, 1858 issue of the Vermont Chronicle. The same letter appeared in numerous newspapers between 1858 and the early 1860s, and then again in the early 1870s. It would have been easy for a compiler of articles about Webster to find this letter. What can't be found is the actual letter or source. There doesn't appear to be one. In the Vermont paper, no citation or primary source for the letter is provided. It simply begins with a heading, Letter from Mr. Webster on Sabbath Schools, Marshfield, June 15, 1852. Professor Pease, Dear Sir, I have received your very able and interesting annual report of the New York Sabbath School Association and read it with great pleasure and instruction. It is gratifying, very gratifying, to learn that in a city where vice and immorality run riot with impunity, a few humble Christians have devoted their time and energies to the cause of religion, and I fervently pray that your labors may be crowned with success. The Sabbath school is one of the great institutions of the day. It leads our youth in the path of truth and morality and makes them good men and useful citizens. As a school of religious instruction, it is of inestimable value. As a civil institution, it is priceless and has done more to preserve the liberties than grave statesmen and armed soldiers. Let them be fostered and preserved until the end of time. Eventually, the letter gets around to telling a story about Webster's trip to Monticello to visit Jefferson. Many years ago, I, meaning Webster, spent a Sabbath with Thomas Jefferson at his residence in Virginia. It was in the month of June, and the weather was delightful. While engaged in discussing the beauties of the Bible, the sound of a bell fell upon our ears. When turning to the sage of Monticello, I remarked, How sweetly, how very sweetly sounds the Sabbath bell. The distinguished statesman for a moment seemed lost in thought, and then replied, Yes, my dear Webster, Yes, it melts the heart, it calms passions, and makes us boys again. Here I observed that a man was only an animal formed for religious worship, and that notwithstanding all the sophistry of Epicurus, Lucretius, and Voltaire, the scripture stood upon a rock as firm and unmovable as truth itself, that man in his purer, loftier breathings turned the mental eyes toward immortality, and that the poet only echoed the general sentiment of our nature in saying that, quote, The soul secure in her existence smiles at the drawn dagger and defies its point. End quote. Mr. Jefferson fully concurred in this opinion and observed that the tendency for the American mind was in a different direction, and that Sunday schools, he did not use our more correct term, Sabbath, presented the only legitimate means under the Constitution 
of avoiding the rock on which the French Republic was wrecked. Burke, said he, never uttered a more important truth than when he exclaimed that a religious education was the cheapest defense of nations. Rake, said Mr. Jefferson, has done more for our country than the present generation will acknowledge. Perhaps when I am cold, he will obtain his reward. I hope so, earnestly hope so. I am considered by many, Mr. Webster, to have little religion, but now is not the time to correct errors of this sort. I have always said, and will say, that studiously perusing the sacred volume will make better citizens, better fathers, and better husbands. A second problem is that Webster visited Monticello from December 14th through 19th, 1824, not in June. So, in fact, Webster did visit Monticello, but not when the letter writer said, and the weather was not delightful. In fact, Webster's party was delayed in leaving because of bad weather. Webster wanted to leave Monticello early because he received troubling news about an illness in one of his children. The child, Charles, eventually died young. When the weather broke, December 19, 1824, which was a Sunday morning, they left the area abruptly. In the detailed written account of the visit by George Tickner, there were no mentions of religious discussions or Jefferson's words, Sabbath bells, or perusing the sacred volume. Another problem relates to the date and the location of the letter. Quote, Marshfield, Massachusetts, June 15, 1852, end quote. In June 1852, Webster was in Washington, D.C., serving as Secretary of State and not in Marshfield, Massachusetts. On June 14, 1852, Webster wrote the following from Washington, D.C. to his friend John Taylor. Webster clearly expected to stay in Washington until near the end of the month. Here's the letter. Quote, Washington, June 14, 1852, John Taylor. I expect to leave this place before the month is out, and I think I shall go to Elm's Farm before I go to Marshfield. I wish you immediately to employ a proper hand to put the boat in order. Let her be thoroughly repaired, with new timbers and sides if necessary, so that she may be perfectly safe, strong and tight. See that she has good oars and a paddle and is well painted. Let the perch in Lake Como know that Mr. Blanchford is coming." Daniel Webster, end quote. Beyond his duties as Secretary of State, June 1852 was an important time for Webster to be in Washington because the Whig National Convention was held in nearby Baltimore from June 16th through the 21st. He was one of the three major candidates for his party's presidential nomination. Although he didn't attend the convention, he stayed nearby in Washington to monitor the proceedings. On June 17, from Washington, Webster wrote the following note of resignation to Millard Fillmore. Quote, Washington, June 17, 1852. My dear sir, I have sent a communication to Baltimore this morning to have an input to the pending controversy. I think it most probable you will be nominated before one o'clock. But this is opinion merely. Yours, D.W. End quote. 
including on June 15, Webster's whereabouts in June have been established by his signatures on various documents and correspondences signed and dated from Washington. He was not in Marshfield, over 460 miles away. The newspaper letter has at least one other problem, and that is the looseness of some of the facts. For instance, Edmund Burke, quoted by the letter writer, wrote in his Reflections on the Revolution in France that chivalry was the, quote, chief defense of nations, end quote, not religious education. It seems unlikely that Jefferson would make that mistake or that Webster would cite it. Furthermore, and we are getting into the weeds here, it is unlikely that Jefferson would concur with shade thrown at the classical philosophers, as the letter writer claims. This is especially true of Epicurus, since Jefferson told William Short, quote, As you say of yourself, I too am an Epicurean. I consider the genuine, not the imputed, doctrines of Epicurus as containing everything rational in moral philosophy which Greece and Rome have left us. End quote. All in all, the letter appears to be a fake. While we would like to say we were the first ones to notice these problems in the letter, although we did investigate all of them ourselves, we are by far not the first fact-checkers to cry foul. In fact, the first complaint about the veracity of the letter came, as, as far as we can find, in the Daily Milwaukee News on August 25, 1858, just months after the letter first showed up in the Vermont paper. George T. Curtis of Boston sent letters to editors of various papers offering many of the same arguments we provided here. Apparently something has smelled off about this story since it first came out. There is yet another problem with Metaxas' application of the quote to suggest Jefferson celebrated the God of the Old Testament. In fact, Jefferson did not have very good things to say about Yahweh. Jefferson wrote that Jesus reformed the religion of the Jews. His, meaning Jesus, object was the reformation of some articles in the religion of the Jews as taught by Moses. That sect had presented for the object of their worship a being of terrific character, cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust, end quote. Jefferson's view of Yahweh is quite negative, and not well represented by Foe Webster's questionable quote, but rather by his own words calling Yahweh cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. Jefferson thought certain teachings of Jesus were good for moral instruction, but Jefferson made himself the judge of which words were diamonds and which ones were dunghill. The actual Thomas Jefferson wasn't an Orthodox Christian. However, a lot of people want him to be, then and now. I ask Anna Burks, Manager for Public Services and Collection Development at the Jefferson Library at Monticello about this. Anna has tracked down many spurious quotes and questionable stories in her time at the Monticello Library. Well, and I think it really, it tells us more about society than, you know, the person that they're supposedly talking about is just a, essentially a, a figure. It could be anyone. So that, that's why I find it fascinating, actually. It's, it's really tells us a lot about people in that time and what they valued and what they thought about, uh, about their own history. 
Christian nationalists then and now want a Jefferson who believes the Bible guides nations and good men. Well, it, <laughs> it's always a case of sort of motivated reasoning. And and people people can't resist a good story to, you know, if something appeals to them, appeals to something as strong as their religious beliefs. Lots of people will repeat something, even if maybe they, in their heart of hearts, might have doubts, but it's such a good story. It should be clear that Metaxas and Barton thought it was a good story. So good, they didn't thoroughly check their sources. The people who cited the story first didn't check their sources either. Paul Matsko told me this kind of thing, like George Washington and his cherry tree, has been going on since the early days of the Republic. I'm a 20th century Americanist, but I did work, I did seminars on 19th century America and the antebellum period. And you have to remember that a lot of our Christianized myths about the founding of America were invented in that generation, the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, by evangelicals who wanted, understandably, to make the founding fathers as evangelical seeming as possible. And so things like Washington's Prayer at Valley Forge and and, and so on were invented or taken from myth and rumor and set in stone as fact by a generation of kind of evangelical pastors and booksellers uh, in the 1830s and 40s. Conveniently, just after most of the people who actually would have had firsthand knowledge of these events were dying off, were gone, right? There's no one to fact check. And again, to be fair, this was not just evangelicals or Christians doing this. You can find other mythologies like this, the story of the little girl who rode through the night to warn her father that the British were coming. That was fabricated in the same time period. It doesn't have a religious valence. So there was this common habit of Americans in that generation after the revolutionary generation died off to use them for personal, religious, and political utility. So Barton didn't do his due diligence and just kind of replicates those fab- those uh, fabrications, those myths, those rumors, those stories, and takes them as God's honest truth. Hold those facts hostage. Torture them until they say, uncle, we must have the best story possible. The ideology demands it. It's tempting to rail on Barton, Metaxas, and other Christian nationalists for their hypocrisy in accusing mainstream historians of not using primary sources when they do not use them themselves. However, I think this inconsistency stands out on its own. Unless you hear me scolding only Christian nationalists, let me hasten to say that it is wrong no matter who does it. The point is that ideologically driven history will often go astray. In our series, we are focusing more on Christian nationalists. But this story and the others we present in this series is a caution to any of us who need to know our history. And that is all of us. Patriotic medley by the latest quartet, Columbia Records. Thanks for listening to God's Honest Truth, a bonus episode of the series Telling Jefferson Lies. We will be back next week with Episode 5, Whitewashing Jefferson. Jamar Tisby, Joel Bowman, Troy Jackson, Joel McDermott, Anna Burks, and possibly some others will be joining us. In the episodes to come, you can look forward to George Marsden, Mark Knoll, Paul Kemeny, and Jennifer Hollenberger, and more from previous guests as well. 
There are others I want to have on the podcast but haven't scheduled, so hopefully there will be some additional surprises. Telling Jefferson Lies is written and produced by Warren Throckmorton. Music today was provided by Jonathan Swaim, Greg Thornberry, and Warren Throckmorton. Please like the pod and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>